Great Yarmouth and District Talking Newspaper Association. Welcome to Volume 41, Number 7 of Grapevine. This issue is recorded on the 18th of February 2021. Hi, I'm Graham, your presenter, and joining me this week is Andrew, your newsreader for the week. Andrew also has a piece from one of R. Dusty's books and a chat with the communications manager of Voluntary Norfolk. The headlines this week include the local Covid updates, a hundred-year-old shipwreck reappears, and will we be welcoming the Yarmouth Eye to the seafront this summer? As usual, though, news comes first, and so it's over to Andrew. Hello everyone, welcome again to Grapevine. It's Andrew here with you this week. As usual, we've a packed programme of news, views and items from Great Yarmouth and the wider area. So without further ado, let's get underway. As ever, we'll start with news of the pandemic. James Paget Hospital has recorded another 28 deaths with COVID-19 in the second week of February. It means the month is already the third most deadly of the whole pandemic, with another two weeks to go. So far, 54 patients at the JPH have died within 28 days of a positive COVID test this month. From February 1st to the 7th, the hospital recorded 26 deaths, and a further 28 were recorded from February 7th to the 14th. Up to February 15th, 338 patients have died with COVID at the JPH, 595 at the Norfolk and Norwich Hospital, 433 at Kings Lynn, and 69 in other settings. However, the number of COVID patients in the county's hospital has dropped by a third since January the 8th. And with case numbers dropping due to the effects of lockdown and the vaccination rollout, a decline in the number of deaths is expected to follow. And the vaccine does seem to be having an effect on deaths in Norfolk's care home, with 31 recorded in the week ending to February the 12th, compared to 54 the week before and more than 100 the week before that. Announcing the deaths, including 10 on February the 14th, the JPH said all the patients, ranging from a man in his 50s to a woman in her 90s, had underlying health issues. It added, the families have been informed and our thoughts and condolences are with them. The number of cases across the borough has also fallen significantly, with most areas recording fewer than 150 cases per 100,000 in the week February the 5th to the 12th. Numbers, however, remain higher in Yarmouth, Central and Northgate, with cases of 211.8 per 100,000. But overall, the number of patients with coronavirus in Norfolk hospitals is now back down to the levels they were at just before Christmas, the county's Director of Public Health has said. And Dr Louise Smith added that the falling number of admissions, coupled with the decline in the number of COVID-19 outbreaks in care homes, were also reasons for optimism. In the seven days leading up to Saturday, February 13th, there had been 1,011 positive coronavirus cases in Norfolk. That's 753 fewer than over the previous week. That means the seven-day incidence rate for Norfolk was at 111 cases per 100,000, a drop of 83 compared to the previous week. As of Tuesday the 16th, there were 318 people who had tested positive for COVID being treated in the county's hospitals, 143 fewer than the week before. While deaths in hospitals increased by 50, 
Dr Smith said she was confident the weeks ahead would see that number fall, both in hospitals and in care homes. The number of outbreaks in other care settings is also down 29 on last week, with 146 current outbreaks, an outbreak being defined as where there are two or more linked cases. Dr Smith said of the overall figures, I am clear that the numbers are going down quite rapidly. The number of patients with coronavirus in hospitals are now back to where we were just before Christmas. I'm also clear that we're now seeing reductions in the number of cases in hospitals and in intensive care units. Deaths in hospitals are now coming down, while the length of stays in intensive care units is getting longer. We're also seeing the number of outbreaks in care homes coming down, and that will be associated with a reduction in the number of deaths. Dr Smith said the final few homes where vaccinations could not previously be done because of outbreaks were now getting their jabs. The number of outbreaks in schools and colleges has also dropped by two in the past week and now stands at 39. And there are two fewer outbreaks in Norfolk businesses, with 65 compared to the 67 of the previous weeks. Surge testing begins in Dis and Royden on Friday amid concerns over South Africa variant cases in Norfolk, but Dr Smith has described these as precautionary. Let's move on to news of the vaccines. And people in Norfolk and Waveney are being told to go as far away as Brighton for a Covid jab, amid issues with availability of vaccines. Norfolk's four large-scale vaccination centres have reduced opening to every other day as they wait for supplies to pick up. Dozens of patients across the area have reported being offered jabs in far-flung locations, such as the East Sussex Seaside Resort of Brighton, which is a 350-mile round trip away. Those attempting to book appointments via the national booking system have also seen Colchester, Ipswich, Bury St Edmunds and Boston suggested as alternatives, all at least an hour and a quarter away from Norfolk's county town. Norfolk itself has four large-scale vaccination centres, Norwich, Kings Lynn, Attleborough and North Walsham, but they are increasingly being admitted from the booking site. Cambridgeshire Community Services NHS Trust, which runs the large sites, said the number of appointments offered was quote, partly based on the expected availability of vaccine. And as a result, all four mass vaccination centres will only be open every other day from 9am to 3pm for the next two weeks, which reflects the current supply of vaccines. Moreover, people in the priority group 6, which is 16 to 64-year-olds with serious underlying health conditions, are being invited to GP-led clinics due to the relationship between general practice and those with long-term conditions. That means mass inoculation sites are having to cater for almost all patients in Group 5, which is 65 to 69-year-olds. One of those offered a jab in Brighton was 65-year-old Ian Butcher, whose nearest available appointment was in Bury St Edmunds, 47 miles from his home near Norwich. It seems strange to me, he said. Mr Butcher, who's retired, said, It's frustrating because the infrastructure is there, but I wonder whether the vaccine has been sent to the wrong places. From the layman's point of view, it seems there must be plenty of vaccine available in Brighton, but not in Norfolk. I'm not desperate to get one, but I'm thinking along the lines of there being an ageing population in a big rural area such as ours. Jill Staines from Long Stratton was also left disgruntled when none of the Norfolk centres were shown as being available. After repeating the booking process several times, the 68-year-old eventually managed to secure a slot at the vaccination centre in the Castle Quarter in Norwich. All available appointments had been taken within five minutes, she said. I posted my problem on Facebook 
and found that, up until recently, there had not been any problems. But on Friday, several people said they were in the same position as me. One lady was elated to finally get the letter, but then deflated when she could not book. It would appear there is still a lack of capacity in Norfolk, and in particular South Norfolk. One woman, who asked not to be identified, said her husband received a letter telling him to book via the national system, only to be offered Brighton, Colchester or Ipswich. The 66-year-old from near Acle said, It's a bit crazy. As much as we'd like to get our toes in the sea at Brighton, we don't want to travel down there. It appears to be another mess, a bit like the testing. Another man in his 60s, who also preferred to remain anonymous, said he and his wife were initially told they would have to take a 100-mile round trip for jabs. As it happens, we've now received a call telling us to go to North Walsham, he said. I was not impressed with the system. People have been offered Brighton, a lot of whom are elderly and not very well. Addressing concerns over a lack of vaccine availability in Norfolk, the Cambridgeshire NHS Trust said new slots were added on a frequent basis. A spokesman said, Anyone in a priority group invited to have their vaccine can look for an appointment at a time and location that's convenient to them through the National Booking Service. New appointments are regularly added to the system as they become available and alternatively people can choose to wait and be contacted by their local GP services. Now moving on to more local news. Our new coastal college has welcomed three new governors. David Blake, Paul Nisbet and Christina Sadler have joined East Coast College with the college keen to hear from others who would be interested in being involved. Mr Blake will be joining the Board and Finance and General Purposes Committee while Associate Governor Mr Nisbet will sit on the Finance and General Purposes and the Curriculum Development Committee. Mrs Sadler is also an Associate Governor sitting on the Audit Committee. Board Chairman Rob Evans said, FE colleges depend on people with a wide range of skills and diverse backgrounds to give their time to join the governing bodies and I'm really pleased to welcome David, Paul and Christina. Now, our local hero Lord Nelson is in the news again. Thousands of exhibits dedicated to Admiral Lord Nelson, including a lock of his hair and his boyhood penknife, have been locked away after a museum was cleared out. The memorabilia has been on display since 2002 in the former Nelson Museum on South Quay in Great Yarmouth, until the building closed more than a year ago due to dwindling visitor numbers and the removal of council funding. Over the last few weeks, all exhibits have been removed from the building and placed into storage and on February the 5th the keys were handed back to the Great Yarmouth Preservation Trust which owns the property. Kerry Robinson Payne, the museum's former curator, said it was quite emotional to see an empty museum and the doors being closed. The original collection was started by Ben Burgess, an avid Nelson enthusiast. Chris Brett, vice chairman of the Nelson Society, said it's disappointing we would like to see the Nelson artefacts on display, but we're keen that the collection is kept together. Great Yarmouth Preservation Trust is planning to reopen the building as an art gallery. A jealous man who armed himself with a pellet gun to threaten another over his girlfriend has been jailed for almost three years. Arunas Rasikas, 28, of Apsley Road in Great Yarmouth, pleaded guilty last month at Norwich Crown Court to possessing a firearm with intent to cause fear of violence on August the 2nd last year. The court heard on Wednesday that Rasikas was jealous of perceived infidelity between his girlfriend and Darius Cessna and that on two occasions he tried to frighten the man. Hugh Vass, prosecuting, said that on June 21st last year, 
CCTV office in Great Yarmouth saw Rasikas outside the KFC on Regent Road where he was having a disagreement with his girlfriend and waving around a baseball bat before getting into a car. He was arrested later that day and told officers his intention had been to scare Mr Cessna and tell him to stay away from his partner. Rasikas had seen text messages between his girlfriend and Mr Cessna, the court heard. Mr Vass said the second incident was on August the 2nd, after 5am, when the accused drove to the town centre looking for Mr Cessna, and there was a confrontation between the men, in the course of which the victim was shot with a pellet discharged from a gas-powered BB gun. The court heard that Rasikas had bought the firearm two weeks beforehand. Mr Cessna was taken to Norfolk and Norwich University Hospital, where doctors decided it would be too risky to surgically remove the pellet, as it was next to a facial nerve, so it was left embedded in his face. John Morgan's mitigating noted the defendant's early guilty pleas, as well as his exemplary record at Norwich Prison, where he had been a Covid cleaner. Mr Morgan's also said the offence was related to, quote, drunken jealousy, and that the defendant really didn't want anyone to get hurt. His intention was to frighten. He said his client was still together with his girlfriend, and any relationship that can survive all of this bodes well for the future, he added. Judge Anthony Bates said the defendant had been aroused by jealousy at perceived infidelity of his partner with Darius Cessna, and he sentenced Rasikas to two years and eight months in prison. More news in just a while, but right now Andrew brings us a poem, What Dusty Wrote. Now, I'm sure most of you know our dear grapevine colleague Dusty Miller, and a couple of years ago Dusty produced a book, obviously for charity, being our Dusty, and it's called Words Are Things, and it's a collection of stories, memories, poems, thoughts, hopes, so it's a lovely little book. Well, I'd like to read one of these poems to you, and as with a lot of things in the book, it has a distinct local flavour. And it takes us back to the times in the 1960s and again in the 1980s when the mods came to town. It's called Council Made Vendettas. Down at Brighton in the 60s, mods and rockers ruled okay. At Great Yarmouth in the 80s, young mods came out to play. They hit the town in convoys accompanied by tomboys. The scooter boys all rally, they often get quite pally except when skinheads show up there. The boots they wear cause bother to the pairs of cops who hover and wonder why they've shaved off all their hair, especially the one called Fred, with Made in Britain tattooed on his head. There's fish and chips and floss and fumes, no vacant spaces in the rooms, the Vespers and Lambrettas face council-made vendettas. On the streets that lads all think are paved with gold, some camp out in the rough, they find the going tough and end up with a stinking cold. But when the sun shines brightly and the shows there are twice nightly, folks sit and watch the sights along the prom. There are camis, there are parkers, some girls are nearly starkers, and patches boast the places they've come from. Amid the revving and the roaring, the poor old horses find it boring. The boys customise their bikes with obvious pride. Scooters with posh hooters belong to the sharpshooters. Some sidecars look like coffins put together by the boffins, so modettes can proudly hitch a ride. Mirrors gleam in countless numbers, engines roar and snarl through slumbers of the old folk trying to catch their Sunday nap. 
Mods epitomise the 60s with their music and their dress and any rough behaviour will surely make the press. They follow Jimmy Porter like lambs led to the slaughter. Quadrophenia is their bible and there is the face. Their way of life has style if it lacks a little grace. With all the sex and soul and booze some can't handle what they choose. They get involved in crime and they end up doing time. Then the town is rightly scandalised to find it has been vandalised but for those who like to cope and without the use of dope the smell of eggs and bacon just cannot be mistaken from the cafes that keep open all night long. In the pubs beer flows like water and they drink more than they oughter while the disco beat booms out till after dawn. The music blares out from the hoo and the jam but the bouncers are tired and they don't give a damn. It's late before the kids begin to yawn when the weekend is ended and their honour has been defended, they travel home, their torch forever lights their way. Then Great Yarmouth will recover from those darling mods of May. In olden days a glimpse of stocking was looked on something shocking up heaven. Second part of the news now, starting with some hints on what to do with old tea bags. Now, they say we should all have a hobby, but a retired teacher is showing that uh, there are different ways of painting masterpieces. Something different is brewing in the world of Norfolk art. For a retired teacher with a flair for painting has taken up what looks like a potty idea, art on tea bags. Jan Heath of Great Yarmouth first came across this form of art after reading about a woman who'd been doing something similar in America. She was running out of space for her work with most galleries and exhibitions closed during lockdown, so she decided she needed to paint smaller. Mrs Heath said, It was trial and error at first when I had to purchase smaller brushes and a magnifying glass. The good news is I've completed over 50 tea bag paintings and they all fit into one small folder. 
She added, there is quite a procedure to prepare the tea bags. To start the process, she lets the tea bag completely dry before either opening the bag flat or opening up one end to tip the tea out. Then she irons the tea bag with a cool iron, followed by a coat of gesso to stop the paint bleeding and to make the bag stronger. Mrs Heath continued, when the tea bag is dry, the fun starts. I paint in acrylics and pens, but you can also use watercolour or gouache. As the bag is so small and is difficult to rub out mistakes, it's best to draw out your design on paper first. Then go over it with a thin black marker and lay the tea bag on top to trace over it. After retiring, she joined the Great Yarmouth Guild of Artists and Craftsmen and more recently the Norfolk and Norwich Art Circle. Ken Hurst of the Norfolk and Norwich Art Circle said, They are amazingly confident with these beautiful little tea bags. As well as original paintings on tea bags, Mrs Heath has experimented with printing photographs on the bags, then painting over the print. She painted one for her daughter, who lives in Australia, for her wedding day, and has since completed a couple of commissions that have gone on to Australia. Well, that's brilliant and very, very different. It's nice to learn about these things, isn't it? And thanks to Mrs Heath for passing on those useful PG um, tips. Sorry. Now, not a storm in a teacup. But Storm Darcy has exposed a shipwreck by erosion on a Norfolk beach. The remains of a shipwreck have been exposed along with a raft of detritus on a Norfolk beach. The east coast is recovering after Storm Darcy swept across the region, stripping beaches of their sand. At Winston, the beach is noticeably lower and the once sandy stretch reduced to a sea of stones. Further south at Hemsby, the shoreline has been similarly ravaged and an estimated 10 feet snatched away virtually overnight in places. Below the vulnerable marrams, the amount of material lost has been so great that a shipwreck not seen for decades has been exposed. As well as being a marker for the severity of this winter's brutal weather, the exposed timbers poking through the sand have been sparking local curiosity. James Bendley, borough councillor and beach cafe owner, said the wreck was fascinating to see. He said he understood it to be the wreck of the fishing trawl of the Unity, which was sunk in 1899 after five crew were rescued by the Winston lifeboat. The service history of the Winston lifeboat Edward Birkbeck, which was saving lives from 1896 to 1924, revealed that it went to the aid of the dandy Unity of Lowestoft on November 8, 1899, and that five lives had indeed been saved. Mr Bensley was 42 and has lived in the village all his life, so he had never before seen the remains uncovered, and the shifting sands already beginning to bury them once more. Meanwhile, he said, the beach looks like a war zone, with scaffolding, brickwork, pipes, paving stones, sandbags and electricity cables strewn all over it. A reminder of the previous erosion catastrophes, when houses on land long gone had collapsed into the sea. In the aftermath of the beast from the east in 2018, a dozen homes were demolished before they were taken, but in 2013, during a disastrous storm surge, some homes slid off the dunes without warning and others were damaged. Yes, I'm sure we can all remember those catastrophic scenes. The debris is thought to be left from that period, a stark reminder of how much land had been lost in less than a decade. And at Hemsby, the beach has dropped so much that the lifeboat is unable to launch. Mr Bensley said a clean-up operation involving the lifeboat crew would likely get underway in the next few days, and some of the debris being of possible use to homeowner Lance Martin. Uh, I'm sure many of you know about his battle to save his clifftop home from the sea. Mr Bensley added, We are a resilient bunch. Our only fear is getting another storm while the beach is in this condition. Continuing on a weather-related theme, 
The trial of a man charged with engaging in coercive behaviour towards his partner was postponed after the courtroom was declared too cold to work in. A man from Shelfanger near Dis was due to appear in Great Yarmouth Magistrates Court for trial on February the 15th, charged with engaging in controlling and coercive behaviour in an intimate relationship between January 2016 and October 2019. He's alleged to have controlled the victim's finances, demanded she added a tracking app on her phone, insisted on access to her personal messages and email, let her car tyres down, threw a kettle across the kitchen, stopped her attending the gym and behaved in a generally unpredictable manner towards her. However, both the witnesses and the defendant had to be sent home after problems with central heating throughout the entire courthouse meant the room temperature was at just 11 degrees centigrade, making it prohibitively cold for solicitors to concentrate. After waiting nearly two hours for the arrival of an engineer, the decision was made to postpone the trial, which took place across Tuesday and Thursday of this week. An informational technology technician who drowned at a Norfolk beach has had the inquest opened. Jacqueline Lake, senior coroner for Norfolk, opened the inquest into the death of Mark Bland on Monday at Norfolk Coroner's Court. Mr Bland, 44, was born in March 1976 in Great Yarmouth and the inquest heard that he died at Galston Beach on January the 30th. On that day, police, the East of England Ambulance Service and HM Coast Guard rescue officers were called to Galston Beach after a member of the public found the body on the shoreline. At the time, formal identification had yet to take place, but police said they informed Mr Bland's family, who had reported him missing on Friday, January the 29th. At the inquest on Monday, his medical cause of death was given as drowning, and the inquest was adjourned to be heard in full on May the 5th at Norfolk Coroner's Court. After nearly four months in hospital, locked in combat with COVID-19, a carer who was infected at work can now respond to nurses and recognise her children in photographs. Stephanie Taylor's three children had been summoned to her bedside multiple times since she was admitted to the James Paget University Hospital on November the 8th last year, but so far, amazingly, she's always rallied and confounded medical experts and defying science. Her son Ricky has hailed his mother's incredible fight against the virus, which has taken a huge toll on the family, already coming to terms with the father's fight against multiple sclerosis. Doctors say she now has a 50-50 chance and her children have set up an online donation page to make things easier if she does hopefully get better and is able to go home. Mr Taylor, who lives in London, said it had been a hellish few months, but his mother's amazing ability to repeatedly astonish medics after being handed the grimmest of prognoses was an inspiration. Every doctor that has treated her has probably learned more from her than at medical school, he said. I just do not know where she gets the fight from and her will to live is incredible. We're hoping that this is the start of a good recovery period. Mrs Taylor, who lives in Galston and has a, an existing health condition of COPD, was working as a carer at Gresham Care Home in the town when she contracted COVID-19. It started with a persistent headache, but she went downhill quickly, becoming delirious on November the 9th when an ambulance was called. After about a week on the ward, she took a turn for the worse and was put on a ventilator. On November the 23rd, the family was told that sadly she was not going to make it. But the last hope was ECMO treatment at the Royal Papworth Hospital in Cambridge, a process which replaces the lungs by oxygenating the blood outside of the body. After three weeks hooked up to the machine, they were called again, saying she was making no progress and nothing more could be done. They said their goodbyes and expected the worst. 
but by Christmas Day she was still critical but alive and they were allowed a FaceTime call, although she could not respond. On January the 13th, there was what seemed like good news. She was being taken off ECMO after 50 days, way longer than the recommended two weeks. But that was in fact because she had suffered a bleed on the brain and her blood was simply too thin to be able to carry on safely with the treatment. On January the 23rd, they packed their bags after being summoned again. Her infection markers had spiked, her kidneys had failed and her lungs were compressed and her heart damaged. But again she pulled through and on February the 6th she was transferred back to the JPH suffering a suspected stroke or seizure a few days later although a scan and lumbar punctures failed to detect anything. Six days later her husband was able to visit and say his goodbyes but the following day she woke up and was able to follow commands and mouth words. Currently she's being weaned off the ventilator and they're looking to take away kidney support. She's probably now as well as she's been, and she seems to recognise us in photographs and is responding to doctors and nurses, her son said. I never expected to see her awake again. It's incredible that she is still with us after the amount of time she's been written off by real experts, defying science. After the fight she's been through, she deserves not to struggle again if she does make it out. There will be plenty of other things to worry about, we are chuffed we've already raised over £1,000 using GoFundMe, but it would be great to be able to pull in something really special. What a remarkable story. Human spirit and medical expertise combined. Let's hope she does recover fully. Over the past few months, uh, we've welcomed a few people to chat about their lives or, or careers. Now, this past year has seen a huge amount of volunteers step forward to take on roles in our communities. So, to give you an insight into how the voluntary sector is dealing with the current situation, I'm pleased to welcome Katie Jones, who is the Communications Manager for Voluntary Norfolk. Katie, welcome to Grapevine. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Andrew. Nice to speak to you. Thank you for inviting us on. Thank you. Um, Can I start by asking you, Katie, when was Voluntary Norfolk first formed and what were the early aims? Well, um, we just celebrated our 50th birthday last year. So we were actually formed, um, well, not last year, before 1969. And it's a lovely little story because um, we were the Norwich Organisation for Active Help. Uh-huh. As NOAA, NOAA was our um, acronym. Right. And um, it was a little caravan, a lovely little caravan that toured the county. And we were there to match volunteers with um, community groups and voluntary mm-hmm. organisations that needed help and it was a very modest little setup, but it was really effective and um, we've obviously grown voluntary Norfolk is a lot bigger now and we do a lot more now but actually matching volunteers to people who need us is still absolutely the heart of what we do and I like the fact that you know we've maintained that tradition and that knowledge for 50 odd years yes yeah, certainly I mean being out on the road 50 years ago was uh, quite a bit groundbreaking achievement I would have thought well yeah and I think it was um, you know it was the days of course you know everything's so at our fingertips now hmm. um, and it's difficult to imagine a time when you know, if you were even to advertise in newspapers, it would take time to of sort course. of you put your advert in and then somebody would step forward. But this was a case of really you know, bringing people to where they needed to be, mm. um, speeding along that matchmaking process. And um, and that's exactly what we're doing today. How many volunteers do you have well, now? We, um, we, there's, there's two sort of bits of what we do. I mean, 
we actually run various volunteer services ourselves. So, for example, we have the COVID response volunteers mm-hmm. and um, the emergency patient, non-emergency patient transport volunteers. So, so Voluntary Norfolk alone, we look after about 600 volunteers um, in various roles, um, very often working in healthcare or community support roles. So that's one thing we do. And then the other thing we do, we support voluntary organisations to recruit their own volunteers. So we sort of act, we actually um, have like a matchmaking portal um, where people can advertise their volunteer roles and we can recruit volunteers and, and try and do that matchmaking still. So we're recruiting for other people and we're recruiting for ourselves. Yes. Um, and there's, there's thousands, I mean, tens of thousands of people involved in volunteering in Norfolk. Really? As big a, as big a figure as that? As... Well, I think people don't actually rem- think of themselves as a volunteer very often. But when you think of those very small neighbourly acts of kindness that people are doing, these are informal volunteering that happen day in, day out. People, you know, my sister who goes and does the shopping for her elderly neighbour. Um, you've got somebody who, who just pops round and sort of delivers the newspapers. Or, mm. you know, these, these are volunteering acts they may not be registered they may not be sort of formalized but people are, are um, helping each other and sometimes it's in a formal volunteering role and very often it's not i see has your membership increased significantly during the pandemic you mentioned you have a covid19 response team so that obviously is a, a completely new offshoot yeah yeah well it did um we uh so we worked with Norfolk county council in the very early days of um uh, when, when when the impact of COVID was sort of becoming known, and um, and the Norfolk County Council um, got together this thing called the Norfolk Resilience Forum, mm-hmm. and it's full of it's it's like they sort of I like to think of it as the Norfolk version of Cobra, you know, gov- the government right. sort of, and uh, so it has emergency services and the health services and the education people and the voluntary sector. Um, basically saying, right, how are we going to tackle this? And they knew, and North County Council knew very early on, and the health authorities knew very early on, that the only way that we were going to really help people through um, COVID was with the volunteer workforce. And um, and they asked us to recruit volunteers to support um, people who are um, at the time shielding, um, or who uh, you know needed extra support. They might have um, you know been low income because of they were out of their jobs and that sort of thing. Um, and we, so we set a recruitment campaign in March last year, and within about about six weeks, I think about four thousand people stepped forward to help. Really. And not every one of those volunteers ended up taking on roles. You know, they have to mean people who put their hands up. You know, things. Mm-hmm. But hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people became volunteers as a result of COVID, taking on all sorts of different roles. Um, like I say, they, they, you know, very often it, to start with, it was you know doorstep drops of medication, that type of thing, right. um, going to collect food parcels. People were not going out of their homes. I mean, we're in lockdown now, but actually this lockdown feels still not quite as severe as those early days in March last year indeed, April last indeed. Year. I think many of us were many people were very scared weren't they in those early very, days very much stuck at home more people were stuck at home hmm. so we yeah so we were doing that and then we also developed services um to support people who were lonely lonely and isolated um and you know befriending things befriending phone calls we've got you know a whole team of people who are making regular phone calls um to people who are still at home haven't gone out or going out the very very bare minimum they're cut off from their normal support networks 
Yeah. Um, and so we are recruiting volunteers for that role. And, you know, we, there's a lovely volunteer called Fiona um, who's been doing some befriending phone calls, um, a, a gentleman in Great Yarmouth and a lady. Actually, actually we both are with Great Yarmouth and Goulston, actually. And Fiona makes phone calls once a week to these these people who are, who are at home. And they said that they're, that's their lifeline, you know, yeah. to the outside world. Um, because they're not going out, and the, these these types of volunteers are making the difference to these people's lives, and we shouldn't underestimate the contribution they make. No, that's very rewarding as well, isn't it? Um, so, you actually at volu- voluntary Norfolk, you you identify local priorities. Then you, you've kind of had some power devolved down to you from the government. Have you? You can you can pinpoint particular sectors, particular areas that might need help. Yeah, I think, I mean, certainly um, we work really closely with um, the uh, county councils, district councils and health authorities, Mm -hmm. um, particularly at the moment because of COVID. um, They know what their communities are needing um, and they know where the gaps are and what can be delivered by NHS services, what can be delivered by council services and what can't be delivered by anything but volunteer services. So at the moment, we are very much being led by what the um, the uh, councils and the NHS are asking from us. But we are also be listening to what people on the ground are telling us that they need because if um, somebody is saying, well, I tried to get this support but I wasn't able to do that, that digital inclusion is a way, I don't really like the phrase, but it, it, the, the phrase is digital inclusion, is making sure that people are connected online. Um, and that's become something that's really become apparent that's emerged because there's lots of, of course, more services than ever now are online. Yes. And more support's online, more entertainment's online, everything's online now, isn't it? Of course. And, and yet there's lots of people who... Are not familiar with online technologies. They don't have the tech. They don't have the um the kit. They don't have the broadband. No. And so, even though all service, you know, services were moving online, it became apparent that people were having difficulty accessing these services. So we were developing digital inclusion volunteers to support people who were having trouble getting online. And we could lend them laptops. We can lend them um, tablets. We can lend them um, you know Wi-Fi dongles. All this sort of stuff to enable them to get on these services that so many of us take for granted. Really? That is that is um, something that many people wouldn't probably put down um, as a job of a voluntary organisation. So all these things have evolved during this pandemic. Uh, yeah, digital inclusion is something that's become a, an emerging issue because, you know, how often have we seen this where somebody says, oh, you know, to get support, go online at www. Mm. You know, and, and it's not that easy for lots no. of people. And to have to have a, a volunteer working with you to say, okay, well you need to do this and you need to do that. And I was just talking to a digital, a new digital inclusion volunteer that we've um, has just started working with us, and she particularly is supporting um, unpaid carers. We um, Bonfi Norfolk also works with um, uh, has a support uh, contract to support unpaid carers, and this particular volunteer um, Jane, she'll be speaking to unpaid carers. Um, to help them get the support that they need, um, maybe to even just do things like um, access um, financial support because, you know, there, yeah. there's lots of grants and things available, but you need to go online to get them. Mm. Um, and so we are having digital inclusion volunteers to enable people to, to get the support they need from other organisations. That's terrific. Um, do you think now this past year will have, will have made more people aware of what they can do to help in the future? Because this isn't going to go away overnight and I think we're going to be needing this extra support within the communities for for a while to come do you yes I think we will 
um, there'll be months and months of COVID-related volunteering. I mean, the vaccination programme, for example, I mean, that is still going to be going on month after month. And mm. that requires a huge number of volunteers. If you think of every vaccination centre that's popped up in, in Norfolk, and they are doing clinics morning and afternoon, sometimes seven days a week, and each of those clinics are being supported by a number of volunteers. You can imagine, I mean, yeah. literally hundreds. Um, I did get some stats from um, one of our, you know, the person who's leading the service, and she said just last week alone that the volunteers did 337 shifts individually, and that's just one, one week really? um, across Norfolk. So that's a phenomenal number of shifts by individual people supporting the community and this will go on for you know for, for the foreseeable future and then you know there's the long-term impacts of covid you know there'll be lots of people um we know people's mental health has suffered we know there's been an increase in um, loneliness and social isolation there'll be lots of support needed but can i also actually to also say that volunteering is a lovely way to to give back and get back into a community so if any of your listeners are thinking they'd like to volunteer you know it, do step forward. And Katie, if, if what you've said has sparked an interest in anybody and they'd like to volunteer, how best will we get in touch with you? Well, Fred, we're online at the moment, Andy, like everybody else. Our offices are closed. Um, we're all working from home. So the best way to get in touch is via our website, which is www.voluntarynorfolk.org.uk. And there's lots of information about what we do and who we support and the different volunteering roles. And that's, that's always the best um, first point of call that's fantastic Katie thank you so much for your uh, your time this afternoon and for giving us an insight into all the different sectors that Voluntary Norfolk covers and we wish you the very best uh, for the future with your organisation thanks once again for being on Grapevine it's been my pleasure thank you very much indeed Andrew thank you bye bye well Andrew it's like this we'd love to give you a break really but unfortunately there's more news to read Onwards and upwards. There's a little bit of a public information element in this item here, but I think it's useful for everyone to know. And the council have unveiled new dates for uh, green bin collections, which have been postponed uh, due to the bad weather last week. Refuge crews on the coast will begin collecting green bins again next week after travel was made unsafe by last week's ice and snow. Great Yarmouth Borough Council has said that due to the volume of black bins and side waste being collected this week, crews will begin collecting green bins on the week commencing Monday, February the 22nd. The council has asked residents to ensure green bins are left out on the correct collection day next week. If your green bin is full and you've got extra recycling, we will collect that providing it is put alongside your green bin in a sack which crews can easily lift, the council said. Alternatively, residents can keep excess recycling in a secure place until the next scheduled collection day. The council had earlier announced revised collection dates for black bins this week, so I hope that's clear to everybody. And as the holiday industry tentatively hopes to soon get the wheels in motion for this summer, a giant Ferris wheel will be the star turn on Great Yarmouth seafront. In a bid to boost the post-Covid summer season, the 50-metre city liner observation wheel is being billed as the perfect seafront centrepiece. Great Yarmouth Borough Council said it had secured the landmark attraction at no cost in order to provide an additional Covid-safe draw as part of supporting the important visitor economy when restrictions are allowed tourism back to the area again. The wheel features 36 capsules, each with a capacity of up to six people. 
It will be put up next to the Sea Life Centre this summer, subject to planning consent and coronavirus restrictions in place at the time. The council has said that fund seekers will have their temperatures taken before boarding and be required to wear a face covering at all times. There will also be a scrupulous cleaning regime in place. Carl Smith, Great Yarmouth Borough Council leader, said, This temporary landmark attraction will enhance the seafront's overall offer in the 2021 season, boost footfall and add to the profile and vitality of our resort during a challenging period for our visitor economy. It will also be COVID-safe fun for visitors and residents alike, offering fabulous views across our coastline, historic skyline and out to the broads. Slightly taller than the revolving tower, which famously stood on the seafront until the war, the wheel will be visible from the Ankle Strait and will form a spectacular backdrop, particularly when illuminated in the evenings. Jake de Koning of the Giant Wheel Company said, We're absolutely thrilled to be presenting our flagship state-of-the-art city liner observation wheel at the iconic Great Yarmouth British Seaside Resort for 2021. This is a landmark attraction that will offer views of Great Yarmouth and Norfolk for over 10 miles distance and we believe it will be a great attraction to what this beautiful seaside resort already has to offer. Subject to planning consent and coronavirus restrictions, the wheel will be in place for the main summer holiday period. A big wheel was last seen on the seafront in 2016. This smaller version stood at 33 metres tall. And the council has thanked Sea Life Centre owners Merlin Entertainments for the use of the gardens. Well, that sounds something that's going to be very interesting to see appear. Let's just hope we are able to get the visitors into town. And still on the subject of iconic structures in Great Yarmouth, a major electrical and mechanical upgrade to the 91-year-old Haven Bridge is set to get underway on Monday, February the 22nd. Announcing the works, Norfolk County Council said the bridge was once again stuck and it would be lifted manually until it was fixed and bookable slots provided for mariners who needed to pass under it. It said the bridge would mostly remain open to road traffic and pedestrians, apart from a limited number of overnight and evening closures, the first of which was likely to be towards the end of March. In 2020, the bridge was out of action for months. Yes, I'm sure we can remember that. But maintenance and repeated test lifting in November meant it was fully operational for a time. However, a further fault last week when it was reported as being frozen shut is still being investigated and it is again unable to lift for river traffic. Martin Wilby, Cabinet Member for Highways, Infrastructure and Transport, said the upgrade was expected to resolve many of the issues caused by the lifting bridge's ageing equipment. He said residents and businesses in and around Great Yarmouth need this bridge to be reliable and this is what this work is intended to achieve. I'm grateful that we were able to secure the necessary funding from the government to make this vital project possible. A statement said the improvements had been made possible thanks to the £22 million highway funding for Norfolk that the Department for Transport announced in May 2020, with £1.2 million of that specifically allocated to the Haven Bridge upgrades. It added that despite unknowns due to the age of the structure and the possibility of other issues being exposed during the improvement works, Every effort will be made to complete the work as swiftly as possible, given the importance of the bridge to both road and river users. Additional funding will be from the County Council's Capital Works Budget, which, combined with urgent works completed last year, are expected to bring the total investment in the bridge over the past year to an eye-watering £2.2 million. The aim is to complete the upgrade by early summer.
So, if it's Tuesday, it must be quiz night at the Short Blue Pub in Galston. Landlord Kevin Duffield has been priming the pumps all day, even issuing a pre-quiz picture round to get things going. In the bar, the fire is crackling and the 56-year-old is ready to host, with even the pub dog already in position. But instead of a chattering crowd and barely an empty seat, Kevin is sat on his own, facing a laptop. He admits it's a bit strange, but hosting a digital quiz has meant finding a new community who look forward to his weekly trivia workouts and say they can't wait to meet him in real life in the pub. It's not like Zoom, he said. I can't see anyone, but they can all see me. It is a bit odd, but we have a good chat and shout-outs for birthdays, and just lately I've been asking who has had their vaccine yet. I tell them that online cheating is the new social distancing breach, but it doesn't really matter. It's all just for fun. I just babble on a bit. On Tuesday, February the 16th, he hosted his 47th quiz. In the beginning, he was getting upwards of 160 people turning up for his Facebook Live sessions, and he's been stunned by their success. Mr Duffield, who's been behind the same bar in the High Street for 36 years, said he was persuaded by regulars to go digital after years of printed quiz sheets in the pub on Mondays and Tuesdays. Mondays was always win the pot night and Tuesday was for charity and he had two different crowds for those quizzes. Usually he would do themed nights but was keeping it as general knowledge for the Facebook live version. And in the same way that real pub quizzes were laid on to draw punters to the venue, the online version was attracting custom too. When the pub reopened after the first lockdown, Many people who had found the online quiz made the effort to visit in person and he expects the same to happen again when current restrictions are eased. He even kept the virtual quiz going while he was able to open in the summer. People in the bar were playing along too. And he's had people of all ages from all over the world logging in including Trinidad and Tobago and Alicante. One family team comprises a grandmother of 95, her daughter and her children too. It's been a really positive experience he added. As much as I enjoy it, it's done some good for the pub as well. The quiz comprises 40 questions, starting with a virtual picture round at around 7.30pm. Then, after some opening chatter, the main quizzing gets underway at 8 o'clock, once everyone is welcomed and seated. Once the answers have been gone through, it usually wraps up around 9.30pm. Mr Duffield said, while it wasn't quite the buzz of the pub, it was something close to it with people, many of them regulars, getting to know each other, enjoying some sort of social life and interacting via the live comments. As well as giving him something to do, as he devises all the questions, it provided a modicum of routine during the pandemic while the pub was shut. Lots of people look forward to the weekly quizzes and the joy of huddling in household clusters and debating whether the logo being shown was for frazzles or squares and other trivia where the answer is on the tip of your tongue. I'm really surprised by how many have joined in, he said. It's free to join and you can do as much or as little as you want. It's just a bit of fun and it keeps the short blue flag flying. He added that he was heartened by the feedback and the kindness of some of his quizzes, having been sent restaurant vouchers, cakes and cards as a thank you for his efforts. Well, this just shows how ingenious some people have been during the lockdowns, uh, some through necessity to keep businesses alive, obviously, and some just through good old-fashioned community spirit. And it seems that Kevin at the Short Blue has combined those two brilliantly. Well done, Kevin, and good luck to you for your future quizzes. Now, children at a school on the coast were treated to free pancakes to Mark Shrove Tuesday. The half-term gift was organised by Peterhouse Church of England Primary Academy and St Mary Magdalene Church in Galston. 
Ryan Freeman, head teacher, said, The children have missed out on enough this year, and therefore we decided to put together free pancake packs that parents can collect. This year, Shrove Tuesday falls in half term, and some families might struggle to buy extra ingredients or get outs to the shops, he added. 80 families signed up to receive the pack, which contains all the ingredients needed to make pancakes at home. Reverend Matthew Price of St Mary Magdalene Church said, In the past years, we've hosted a community pancake party at the church, but because of the pandemic, we're unable to do that this year, but we're delighted to be working in partnership with our friends at Peterhouse to mark Shrove Tuesday. A resurgent Norfolk farm shop, which almost closed before last year's lockdown sales boom, has now submitted plans for an ambitious expansion. The Hurst family, which owns the farm on North Road in Ormsby St Margaret, has applied for permission to convert a redundant building, previously used as a kitchen and shower block for seasonal workers, into an expanded farm shop and cafe. The project would increase the size of the existing shop threefold, allowing it to recruit new staff and capitalise on the increased demand for locally sourced food and drinks at the family. And it could improve the resilience of a rural business which also includes a mixed farming enterprise and the Hursties Family Fun Park at Hemsby, both very weather-dependent sources of income. Robert Hurst, who runs the shop with his wife Becca, said, The family discussed closing their tiny outlet a year ago to focus on the fun park as its busy Easter period loomed but then the COVID-19 pandemic turned everything on its head. Within two weeks of having that discussion, he said, we'd been locked down and the supermarkets were not able to stock the shelves. But we had our beef and lamb for sale and Becca was cooking non-stop doing ready meals and it all grew from there. The tables turned, he continued. Suddenly the farm park shut and the farm shop was booming. If it was not for COVID, we wouldn't be looking to do any more, but that gave us the confidence to keep going. The reason for the big move is for the last 12 months we've been cooking in our kitchen, but it's got to the point where we want our house back. To start with it was in a spare room downstairs when we renovated our house, but we have moved beyond that now. It is a huge step for us, he continued. We need to broaden our product range. We are putting in a commercial kitchen and we would like to have an open-fronted cafe looking out over the farm. In April we will be into lambing and carving, and we want to create a really nice experience for young and old to come out to the farm. Mr Hurst said if permission is granted by Great Yarmouth Borough Council, he hopes the new shop could be open by Easter. Well, another example of keeping it all local. I have one or two items of police news here for you. Uh, yesterday afternoon, thieves broke into the luxury home of Rasmus Backstop, the budgery cage millionaire. He claimed later that they totally cleaned him out. Another report of a theft was also at the BBC's makeup department on the Holby City set, where thieves uh, escaped with only cuts and bruises. But it was good news for the local man who's been jailed for five years for stealing vinyl records. He's being re-released on Friday. And finally, some traffic news. Police report that a lorry load of onions has tipped over on the A47. The police are on the scene and they're advising motorists to find a hard shoulder to cry on. That's all from this edition of Grapevine. The recording is copyright 2021 of the Great Yarmouth and District Talking Newspaper Association.
The news content is adapted mainly from the publications of Archant Limited and is used with their consent. However, the Great Yarmouth and District Talking Newspaper Association accepts responsibility for editorial decisions made for this recording. Next week's newsreader will be Margaret, and we hope that we can look forward to welcoming you once again for much more of your local news. In the meantime, from all at Grapevine, we hope that you stay well and safe and enjoy a taste of spring during the next few days. Bye for now.